Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Job again. And this morning I'm going to read to you chapter 27, verses 1 through the end of the chapter, verse 23. Job chapter 27, verses 1 through 23. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Hear God's word. Moreover, Job continued his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Far be it from me that I should say you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. May my enemy be like the wicked, and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he may gain much if God takes away his life, will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call on God? I'll teach you about the hand of God. What is with the Almighty? I will not conceal. Surely all of you have seen it. Why then do you behave with complete nonsense? This is the portion of a wicked man with God. And the heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it's for the sword. And his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Those who survive him shall be buried in death, and their widows shall not weep. Though he heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth, which a watchman makes. The rich man will lie down, but not be gathered up. He opens his eyes, and he is no more. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away, and he's gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls against him and does not spare. He flees desperately from its power. Man shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. And thus far God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us as we examine this discourse uh, from Job. His kind of summary statements that he's beginning to make in these chapters. I pray that uh, you would open this up for us, that uh, our eyes would indeed be opened, that we would behold wondrous things out of your law this morning. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come to a major juncture here in this book of Job. We've seen this debate or this discourse between Job and his friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. We're at a place where essentially the debate is over. Bildad was probably the last gasp of his friends attempting to 
once again put forward their understanding of how one is to understand suffering and its relationship to sin. But Job, as we have seen in these chapters, uh, has decisively defeated them regarding their argument. Their argument, their, their neatly packaged dogma, their understanding that of the relationship of cause and effect to reap what you sow with suffering and sin. What they had to say, it just simply does not address Job's situation, Job's suffering. And he makes it very clear there in verse 5, first part of it. He says, Far be it from me that I should say you're right. And later on, he, verse 12, uh, essentially refers to all that's gone before as nonsense. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. And he's made it very clear and pointed out very effectively that their dogma, their understanding is fundamentally wrong. It doesn't address his situation. It, it is a result of their own understandings. They, they cannot admit that there's more to this than their understandings will allow. He's not the wicked man that he's been portrayed as. It's not about being pious uh, that before God, uh, whereby suffering would end for Job, that it kind of uh, works salvation, so to speak. They had nothing to say about grace. Nothing to say about mercy. And we've noticed that if Job were to acquiesce to their argument, if he had caved into their argument, it would have been a denial of what he's been claiming all along. And what he's been claiming all along is his integrity and his righteousness and his blamelessness. And it's interesting to note what has happened to Job through the course of that debate, which is now over. And now, as Job goes into his summary, uh, is that instead of withering under the assault that he endured through much of what they had to say, he is now more adamant. He is now more firm in his belief. And you just have to step back for a minute and simply be amazed. Here is, uh, it's one thing to be attacked as he was, to, to endure that onslaught that no-holds-barred, furious uh, attacks and accusations against him by itself. That would be hard enough if he had his health, if he had his children, if he had his uh, his wealth, etc. But he, he, simultaneous to those terrible attacks, was this extremely unbearable onslaught And yet, in spite of all of that, he never said, okay, fine, enough already, you win, caving into it. Instead, what does he do? He he makes an oath. Look how he words it there in verse 2. As God lives, it was taken away my just, and the Almighty. Again, this is a courtroom scene again. He's visualizing himself really in the witness stand. And he's taking an oath, very similar to what occurs in a courtroom environment. If you've ever observed a courtroom environment or been part of that, that witnesses are asked to take an oath. And he's saying, not far from caving in, far from being discouraged, I'm more firm. I'm taking this oath 
regarding my integrity and regarding my righteousness. But it's interesting the way he gives that oath. Notice how he says it. As God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty, who has made my soul better. You see, there's something lingering there. It's this issue that he still has with God. He's dealt with his friends. They are no longer any form of a threat to him. And they're silenced. They have nothing more to say. They're exhausted in what they have to say. And I would suggest to you that although Satan, the argument of the friends has, has been decisively beaten, and yet the, we still see the hand of Satan working on Job. There's a kind of a subtlety here, there. Job is still conflicted at this point in time. He knows there's a mediator. He knows there's an advocate. And finally, with his wonderful expression of faith, I know my kinsman redeemer lives. And on that day, it'll all come clear and I'll be vindicated. He still doesn't know how to deal with what's going on now. And from his perspective, uh, there's something missing and something is messed up here because he knows God to be a just God, ultimately, that will come forth. But it seems right now that he's unjust in what's occurred to me. He's taken away my justice. He's made me bitter. This, uh, he wants to face God. Uh, Hal Jones uh, has an interesting comment about this. He says, Satan, again, we don't see the name of the Satan or his title, the Satan, uh, as we saw earlier in the chapters in Job. But we see his hand. We see him working through the friends, and we see him still working on Job. And it's a subtle way that he's doing it because Job still wants his day he wants his day in court and here's what Hal Jones says Satan is such a deceiver that he'll make it seem that God is like him a deceiver and all because he has totally failed in his attempt to make himself God So he's going to recreate God to Job, and apparently as he did to himself, thinking himself to be God. That was his initial self-deceit that the Satan experienced. And he wants Job to feel that as well, that something's wrong with God. God's not just. And that's why you're you're not getting this justice. You've made your, your soul bitter. Job wants his day in court. He wants to be vindicated. But you can see the subtlety of this, that here's Satan still trying to push for his ultimate goal. And what was that? To get Job to the place where he would curse God to his face. He's dealt with his friends, but Satan's not through here. If I can just get him angry enough, if I can get him to the point where he feels bitter for what's happening to him, maybe I can get him to the place where it will just come out. He'll curse God to his face. And you have to ask the question, because that's not a bad tactic if you think about it. Look look what the Satan has done with him. He's taken everything. There's nothing that he's held back. The only thing he could not do is to kill Job. But he brought him to the point and the brink of it. His family gone. All of his ten children. His wife even saying, say goodbye to God and die. Your wealth is gone. Look at you. You're a walking corpse. 
If I can just keep that thought in your head that somehow God is unjust. Isn't he done that with the world? Isn't how the world thinks about God? I'm sure you've encountered the question, well, if there is a God that you're talking about, why is there suffering in the world? Why do people, why did this happen or that happen? How can that be? You call God just, how can that be? So he's still working on him there. So, so what sustains him in the midst of this? Look what he says in verse 6. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart, and some understand another way to say that, is my conscience shall not reproach me or not reprove me or not condemn or accuse me as long as I live. What a wonderful statement and stand that he's taking there what he's saying is he has a clear conscience he's lived a life such that his conscience by and large is is clear he's not carrying around guilt John Bunyan struggled with that in his own life and that came forth in his story of Pilgrim's Progress with that bundle that Christian carried around. He, if you're familiar with the story, and Bunyan made it clear at a later time, he was converted at the time that he came into the wicked gate. But he was still carrying that burden. He still wasn't convinced, ultimately, that his sins were forgiven. And he carried the burden until it finally rolled off of him at the sight of the cross. Well, what Job is saying... And this is a fruit of the kind of life that he was living. And what was that life that he was living? We were told all about it back in the very beginning of the book. He's a man who was blameless, upright. That's what we could see outwardly about him. But inwardly, he was one who feared God and shunned evil. What was out was the same, but that was in. There, there was complete transparency as regards his life, and he had a clear conscience. And a clear conscience results in assurance, doesn't it? Isn't that the barrier to being assured about your position with God? Is there's lingering guilts and doubts that are there? Job's saying, I don't experience that. I have that confidence. In fact, I'll make an oath about it. That's how adamant he is at this point. He, he's, as such, he, I love this word, he's indomitable. When I see that word, I think of uh, Winston Churchill during World War II. There was a time when uh, Nazi Germany had overrun uh, Western Europe and driven the British Expeditionary Force off of, uh, they were rescued at Dunkirk. And then you have a, this period of time where England by itself was uh, fighting this war. And there were overwhelming numbers. And some have said Winston Churchill basically won the Battle of Britain with his mouth. We will never, 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 never give up. And that's really kind of where Job is here at this point. I am never going to cave in to what I'm being tempted to do and what I'm being accused of. I'm making this oath. He can't be defeated. He's invincible here. That's what indomitable means, to be such that you can't get at that one. You can't discourage them, ultimately. And what's the explanation for that? Is that just Job summoning up strength for himself? 
No, it's redemptive grace. Job was the experiencing and probably couldn't give adequate description of his experience, but he was experiencing the grace of God sustaining him. He was persevering because he was being preserved by God himself. That great work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Job to the point where Job was so convinced of his standing before God in the midst of not only the suffering that he went through in, in such immeasurable ways, but uh, the, the accusations. You're a wicked man. You're a terrible man. In fact, they went out of their way. They started making up sins, you'll perhaps recall, from previous attempts to get at him. That redemptive grace, though, was not known by his friends. They had no understanding of that. It was all about works for them. You want to be in a good position with God? Be pious. Stop sinning. Then you'll be blessed. That's a works salvation. That's Satan's version of the gospel. They didn't know about it. Satan did. And yet denied it. He hated it, that idea of redemptive grace. Why? Because God is glorified. When, and this is the whole purpose of what God is doing, really, with Job, is to put on display this man, man this man of dust, this fallen creature, this rebel, and yet a, a, one who's experienced this redemptive grace in his life, whereby he is a new creature in Jesus Christ. And God is, has every purpose to, here he is. You, you can't kill him. But you can do all you want against him, and he won't cave. And he's indomitable because I made him that way. That's why he's that way, but Satan will have nothing of it. This idea of undeserved mercy, and that's one of the features, of, of, uh, characteristics of God that mostly glorifies Him. Every one of us in this room, everyone who's ever lived, is deserving, absolutely deserving of eternal damnation. And yet God, out of love, at His pleasure, has elected some for salvation. And He's done all that's necessary in order to bring it to pass whereby they may be forgiven of their sin, and given new life such that they are new creatures in Jesus Christ. Not patch up versions of the old, but brand new creatures in Jesus Christ. With the goal of bringing them, to these forgiven ones, to a place of perfection. That's a just mercy as well. And that glorifies God and the Satan hates it. Job knew these things. But he wanted to hear it from God. It made me think of the passage, and we studied it some time ago when we worked our way through the prophet Zechariah, chapter 3. Zechariah has this vision of Joshua the high priest. Now that's not the same Joshua that we know from the book of Joshua. That is a different Joshua, but he was a high priest. And we read there in verse uh, Three, that he was standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to what? To oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord 
rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I've removed your iniquity from you, and I'll clothe you with rich robes. Zechariah saw that as a vision. That's what Job wanted to hear. He wanted to hear those words from God himself. You remember back in chapter 23, verse 3, one of Job's desires, uh, ultimate desires, was what he expresses in verse 3 there in chapter 23. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. He, he wants his day in court. And the thing that he didn't really fully understand, it, he was already there, already in the very sanctuary of God. And the Holy Spirit was bearing witness to him internally. That's how he was able to say what he said about himself, about his integrity. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has witnessed to him, essentially, See, I've taken away your iniquity, Job. I'll clothe you with rich robes. The rich robes of the righteousness of Christ. And how did, therefore, Job know all this? Well, that whole sacrificial system. We have already seen how his sons, his children were such that he, the ten of them, when they got together family gatherings, just in case they had done something, he would one by one go to them. This sacrifice, this animal that is going to die on this altar is in place of you, number one son. This is what should happen to you. But by God's grace, the shedding of the blood of this animal will be recognized by God as a substitutionary sacrifice. Uh, No, no, it's not the animal itself. The blood of an animal can't take away sin. But this is a picture, is a token of what's going to come. Job knew that and understood that. And that was a witness to him. By the Holy Spirit. He just wasn't able to articulate it that way. He didn't need this day in court, as it were, that he was pleading for. He already had it. He was there already. Well, what Job is going to go on to say in this chapter is a definition of what he's been experiencing. And what he's been experiencing can be summed up by uh, this forceful denial of the gospel by his friends in all that they had to say. The, the friends didn't know they were really kind of working, as it were, for Satan, being spokesmen for him. But Satan was using them as his spokesman. How? Well, we just read it. A picture of that that Zechariah saw there in verse 1 of that same chapter in Zechariah. There's the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. What was he doing? What does it mean to oppose him? He was accusing him. How can you stand here in the presence of God, 
standing before the angel of the Lord. How can you stand here? You're filthy. We read the rest of that description. He's in filthy garments. You're guilty. You have no right to be here. And oh, by the way, there's more to it than that as far as Satan is concerned. He's essentially accusing God of being unjust. The very thing he wanted Job to, to be disturbed by and perhaps finally be the thing that would push him over the edge to curse God to his face. He was accusing God of being unjust in his accusations against Joshua the high priest. What are you doing here? You're a sinner. You're filthy. And you know, Satan was right. He was a sinner, Joshua the high priest. Made no difference that man had that position. He was still a a sinner with a a sinful nature. He was dressed in filthy garments. Perhaps Paul was thinking about this passage amongst, along with another passage in Isaiah when he finally came to his understanding of his so-called righteousness, his law-keeping. He recognized it as filthy garments before God, worth nothing. And Satan was right as far as it went here. He, he is. He did sin. He has these filthy garments. And, and God, you, you're apparently unjust by allowing him to be here. So much for your justice. This is Satan. Very similar to another passage. We've looked at this before. And I never tire of looking at it. And I hope you don't tire of it either. But it's in the Revelation. In chapter 12. And we're told in this vision that John received. That there was a war in heaven. And Michael and his angels fought with the dragon there in verse 7. And we know who the dragon is. We're told in the next couple of verses. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they didn't prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Some think, well, that must have been the initial rebellion against God by Satan, who took some of the angels who joined him. We know them as demons. And so there's this battle, this warfare. We're not talking about guns and tanks and missiles. It's a different kind of a warfare. And we'll find out what he was doing. What was the warfare about? But first we read that the great dragon was cast out. In case we have any doubts about who this is, this is the serpent of old. Takes us right back to the garden. Called the devil, the Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Okay, why? What was going on? Well... We get more information. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. That's the occasion whereby Satan and his demons were cast out of heaven. It wasn't some pre-battle that took place perhaps before the fall or any other time frame that others have come up with. No, this is definitely keyed right into the turning point of the coming of the Christ. Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren, and here it is, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And how did they overcome him? What was the end of the warfare? What was the decisive victory? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. By the word of their testimony. 
and they did not love their lives to the death. What we have here is a remarkable picture of what happened in heaven when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended. Here is this battle that Zechariah saw. He saw it with the, uh, the Satan opposing Joshua the high priest, accusing him. You're filthy. You're dirty. And essentially accusing God. You're unjust to allow him to be standing next to the angel of the Lord. What, what kind of a God are you? And that's what he was doing prior to the ascension of Christ. Here you have the saints in heaven, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Moses and others. What are they doing here? And there's the warfare that's going back and forth. And it would finally be settled when Jesus Christ would appear. There's the answer to your accusation. They're covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. That blood which is of immeasurable worth and timeless because he is a divine Savior. His divine nature gave infinite worth and timeless worth to all that he did. And they too were covered under the blood of Jesus. And now it's happened in space and time. So you, you have no more arguments, Satan. And by the way, you're thrown out of heaven. You cannot no longer have that position of being in heaven and accusing the saints. That which he was able to do in the days of Job. You remember the council came together as it were. He can't do that anymore. He's lost. The great decisive battle has taken place. And all because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, which is the indication that they had new, new creatures. They're forgiven and now new creatures in Jesus Christ. And now they have that love. That love is such that they didn't love their lives they were willing to die for that testimony. There's an incredible victory achieved by Jesus Christ. And, and, and Job saw that from afar. It helps us explain what Paul had to say about it as well. If you go to Romans chapter 3, Paul's talking about justification. That wonderful doctrine of justification whereby God forgives sinners, but does it justly. Treats them now as if they'd never sinned. Innocent of all charges against him. He explains what's happening. He says they're justified freely in verse 24 by his grace. Undeserved favor. Mercy. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Just as the animal and the shed blood of the animal in the days of Job pointed to ultimately what Christ would be. He would be that victim, that sacrifice. It would be his blood. It would be his death. And thereby justice has been served. And just as the animal was to be one that was blameless without blemish, how much more Jesus Christ, perfect, absolutely sinless, no corruption whatsoever, and yet he who knew no sin was made sin on behalf of the sinners like you and I. And this was, took place so that God could be propitiated. God set him forth as a propitiation, a satisfaction. That's a legal term. By his blood. Blood's been, a life has been taken. Eternal death has, been, has happened. And God says, I'm satisfied. The law, death have no more claim on this one. And it's through faith. That to a gift. And why did he do it? You might, you would think Paul would say right after that, to save sinners, which is true. 
But Paul wants to make a, a, a very particular point here. Did it chiefly for his own glory to demonstrate that he really is righteous. Because it looked before like he wasn't. Because he goes on to say, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. It looked like God didn't ultimately deal with sin. That was Satan's point in that warfare. That was Satan's point with Joshua the high priest. How has your sin been dealt with? He's he's a prosecuting lawyer in in, in his accusations. How How can he stand with you? How can he be in your presence? He's guilty. And so too are all these Old Testament saints. And Christ appears on the scene. End of argument. Decisive end of argument. You have no more claim to make accusations against these ones who are with me and ultimately against God. You're out. That's the great reality that's taking place. And Job saw that dimly. He had not yet come into the fullness of the understanding of his suffering, that redemptive suffering that Christ uh, experienced, that, that would point to his sanctification. He didn't understand that fully. Later he would. Now suffering makes sense. Suffering by itself makes no sense. But when it's related to the redemptive suffering of Jesus Christ, that makes a world of sense. Because sin has to be dealt with legally and morally. And this is dealing with his legal case. My heart will, I have a clear conscience. I keep short accounts with God. When I'm made aware of my sin, I confess it, I repent of it. My conscience is clear. And I know it's been paid for. He was persuaded. He knew and believed and he had that firm understanding of of what uh, uh, Paul would later put into words. Later in Romans chapter 8, the question comes up, who will bring a charge against God's elect? So Job was essentially saying, you can't bring a charge against me. You can't hold anything over me. My sin's been dealt with and God has taught me that. Through the sacrificial system. And I know the animal and its blood. But that was a picture, a token of what was to come. And I know he's coming. My kinsman redeemer. You can't accuse me. That which you've been doing right along. You have no footing. Just like Satan himself would experience it later. When Christ finally did come. And then he makes this powerful statement that Paul does. Job wasn't able perhaps to articulate it in his day. He still saw much through a glass darkly. But it's God who justifies. It's not Satan. He doesn't say, well, okay, you're clear now. No, he mostly accuses. It's not the world. The world goes on accusing God's people. Well, you're this and you're that. You're obviously haters and you are ones who don't, uh, unloving of other situations. All these accusations that are thrown against Christians or yourself, you don't justify yourself either. When we do that, we become legalists, don't we? We have those kind of thoughts that when we've sinned, well, maybe I can make up for that sin. Once you go down that road, you just became a legalist. You've just put aside the fact that, no, you're free and clear in justification. That's God's declarative legal 
uh, act whereby he declares a sinner sinless. End of the court session. Case dismissed. And that's what Job was, has progressively come to this place where instead of withering, instead of giving in, well, he, he's, he's blossoming here. I, I'm making an oath. He was talking about God's redemptive grace in his life. He knew it. He believed it. There, that these, all of these sacrifices he did over and over again for his children and for himself and his wife, and who, there would be an ultimate sacrifice, a one-time sacrifice. It would be made. And Job, by faith, was making a claim on that, that that applied to him as well. And thereby he joins that parade of saints in Hebrews 11 who, who lived by faith in the promise. What promise? The coming of the ultimate one. The seed. The one who would deal with our sins. Once forever. Whereby God now can justly say, you're forgiven. No charges against you anymore. In my sight, you've lived legally. It's as if you've lived a sinless life because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. John has articulated what, what Job is beginning to formulate. Uh, we, we, we say it, I say it in the pastoral prayer and what he says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's simple. Not really simple because there's so much behind those words. Your sin was paid for before you were ever born. Think about that. You have sins you haven't even sinned yet. They're already paid. Debt paid. That's what justification is all about. And he's faithful and just. Why? Because he made a promise. He and the Son and the Holy Spirit entered into a covenant of this grand enterprise that would characterize our existence, whereby there would be the gathering of sinners who would then be justified and sanctified and make up the church. And God in the process would be glorified because God would justly forgive them and the corruption that entered into creation would be gone. The suffering that the world identifies. Why is there cancer? Why is this? Why doesn't God take care of it? Brothers and sisters, He is taking care of it. He's just doing it in a way that we wouldn't have come up with. And He's doing it in His timing. There will be a world where there will be no cancer. There will be no sorrow, no tears, no dysfunction, no disease, no wars. God is taking care of it. But we like it done our way, don't we? We forget that God is in the business of glorifying Himself. And this whole process that we're seeing, we're seeing all of His characteristics on display. Even with sinners, God is being compassionate, pity, forbearance. Come, come. The door of the ark still open. Come before it's shut, and it will shut. Seek the Lord while He may be found. You might not even have this evening. As the fool, as Jesus characterized him, who was planning about tomorrow. Why? I have so much stuff. I need more buildings. 
I'm always amused by these ones on that show who literally have barns of stuff. And the, the ones seeking some treasures, they'll come out with something. Would you sell this? Oh, I didn't even know I had that. <laughs> I forgot all about it. Uh, as he sits there in his wheelchair and uh, his, his elderly years on oxygen, he said, oh, no, I can't part with that. You are going to part with it. But you're clinging to something you can't have and you're looking for satisfaction and joy that is going to be gone. How foolish that is to think we can somehow find this peace and this joy and this a, a clear conscience and things that we do. You can't get there from there. But the key to Job's firmness, his indomitable spirit, was his close. It was the fruit of his close life with the God that he loved and wanted to come into greater understandings of. And he has his day in court. He was there. And the Holy Spirit was already bearing witness to him. And therefore he had a clear conscience. And he was recognizing in this chapter really this relentless attack by the enemy. This ongoing effort to undermine. As if Satan was saying to them, you're guilty. I don't care what you say, Job. You're guilty. Accusing him. Only you can save yourself, Job. That was the advice of the friends. That's their dogma. And that was coming at him in, in, in such a barrage. And Job came to understand that. And that really helps us understand verse 13, which is really the focal point of this whole chapter. We read there, This is the portion of the wicked man with God and the heritage of what oppressors receive from the Almighty. Who are the oppressors? Well, I think we can safely assume that he's talking about his friends here. They were oppressing him. There's the real oppression. You hear that word in our culture. But Satan is the one applying this pressure. And it was in the form of these accusations. So what, what's Job doing here? And he refers to them in verse 7. May my enemy be like the wicked. Who's his enemy? Well, his friends right here. He doesn't name them, but I think we can safely say that he really wants them, Hey, listen up. You failed in your attempts to sway me, to cause me to cave in, to go along with your assertions, your dogma. But you're in trouble because of the way you've done it. You've become my enemy, not my friends. What you have to say is complete nonsense. You're my oppressor. And he's warning them what happens to those who stick their finger in the eye of God as the way that they deal with God's people. And you can read through, as we did through, uh, this is what happens. He's, he's talking, there will be wars. There will be want, want of basic goods. There will be disease. Verses 16 and 17. Uh, this one who heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay. He may pile it up, but the just will wear it. You see what he's saying? All, all that you think you have 
It's for nothing. It's for you if you remain in this position of being the enemy, siding with him. Because there's coming a, a time when it will all be swept away. And, and the, the ultimate thing here is that God actually uses oppressors in the sanctifica- sanctification work of his children. And when he's done using them, when he's finished, then he's done with them. Habakkuk struggled with this. He, he, he looked at his nation and, and he, he said, to, look what the people are doing. The idolatry, the wickedness. And God said, I know. That's why I'm going to send the Babylonians. The Babylonians, God? Don't you know about them? They, they're a wicked people. They, when, when they catch a fish, they worship the net. I know. But when I'm done with them, using them to discipline my people, then they will be judged. We read this, uh, God's pronouncement ultimately on Babylon. Chapter 2, verse 8. Babylon, because you plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. We just have to stand back and be amazed at how God orchestrates the administration of his church. There will be those who are oppressors. Satan is going to continue to accuse. He has no place in heaven, but he will continue to tempt you. He knows how to tempt. And then when you fall, he will then accuse you. And he will try to get you to believe that uh, somehow like, maybe you had salvation, but you've lost it, and now you've got to do something to make up for it. No, your justification is your refuge. Go to the cross. That sin's been paid for. No amount of penance or purgatory or good works could add or detract from it. Jesus said it's finished, and it is. We don't need a crucifix hanging on a wall. That cross is empty. Job is essentially saying this is what happens to those who oppress God's people. Ultimately, this is what happens. So brothers and sisters, what do we take from this? We'll take heart, all of us. If you're this morning, by faith, or you're clothed in the blood-stained garment of Christ's righteousness, then you can know, be assured, from Job's response here, that Satan has been soundly defeated, and his accusations are toothless. Just words. And yet... As we've seen with Job, they are the very means that God uses them. He uses them to not to destroy you, but to strengthen you. We've gone through these chapters. We've seen Job emerge and his faith growing, his understanding growing. And finally, this oath. I have a clear conscience, period. And God can use that in your life as well to make you indomitable. And 
what do you do when you come under attack like that? Don't you dig deeper into his blessings and understandings of what has been accomplished for you through Jesus Christ? You cannot plumb the depths of all of that. And God uses this. Satan's still God's Satan, his servant. And he uses him, which must gall Satan no end. And yet he continues because the Satan is deceived. Somehow he thinks that he can still overcome God. He can't. And he can't overcome you either. And your refuge is grab hold of your justification. To know that even your sins have been ordained by God. That's hard to understand and believe. But in such a way that he he does not tempt his, his... Righteousness and purity is in no way corrupted. But God will allow you to fall. But he will use it. Because you'll become that much more humble, as Peter did after his denial. He recognized how weak he really was. How proud he really was. And he realized that he has an enemy. And we rely on that redemptive work of Christ. And we make ongoing claims to it. That's why we come together regularly. That's why I hope you're reading your Bible regularly, praying, putting on the armor of God every day, and get that shield of faith to to ward off the fiery darts of the enemy, those accusations that he'll make against you to try to undermine the gospel. Paul, again, we go to Romans. It's summing up here of the... The, the therefore in verse 1 of chapter 5 the, the justifi- we, having been justified by faith meaning we, we believe that Christ really did fulfill all the requirements of the law on our behalf and the benefits of that are now ours credited to our account by faith that to a gift and therefore we have peace with God there's no warfare there and I'm determined to keep close accounts with God I have a faithful high priest. I can boldly and confidently go to him and, and look for grace and help in time of need and confess my sins and, he, and knowing that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He doesn't ever says to you, well, you've really done it this time. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, you've come too many times. He doesn't say, I've had enough. You work it out for yourself. He never says that. No, he will forgive you. Why? Because they've already been dealt with. And because of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the fullness of His titles in His name. Through whom also we have access by faith, again, into this grace in which we stand. And the happy result, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, I think some of these advertisers got that expression from the Bible. They present some product, and this is great. And, oh, and there's more. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations? Yes. Why? Knowing that tribulation produces fruit, perseverance. Perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And that's what's happening to Job. There's much still to be learned. And there's still much more that he will make claim on. 
regarding this justification, but that confidence whereby he's, I'll take an oath. And now he's showing love to his friends. I'm warning you. You came to be my comforters and friends, but you're my enemy, really. My oppressor. You're unwittingly. Because Satan's using you to accuse me. And all it's done is strengthen my faith. Take warning. Ultimately, they will. God willing, we'll see that. But brothers and sisters, grab hold of that justification. Let that be a comfort to you in this life. Use that to ward off the fiery darts of Satan's accusations. The work of Jesus Christ is a finished work. That's why he ascended into heaven. To present the result of that work to the Father. And there was joy in heaven. The Father delighted, as it were, to, we read in Isaiah, to, to, as to what happened to Christ on the cross. Why? Because many would be justified. By God's grace, may you be one of them. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, what comforting, marvelous, uh, awesome words. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Not the world. Not the enemy. Not ourselves. You are the one who justifies and you justify on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ, whereby the sins of your people have been dealt with forever, sunk in the deepest ocean, as far as the east is from the west. And as such, we are your children. We have a, a brand new standing with you. One must have clean hands and a pure heart to come in your presence. Well, our great Savior has that clean heart, clean hands, and a pure heart. And by virtue of our union with Him, we have it as well in your sight. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. We thank you and praise you this day. In Jesus' name, amen.